Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by Crimcheck. Hey, Black, what's on your background? Skirt, skirt, squeaky clean. Mm, I don't know about that, but hey, everyone has a past. And while we aim to tell stories, we also know how important it is for employers to get the answers they need to make hiring decisions quickly, which is why we have partnered with a company called Crimcheck. They specialize in providing pre-employment screening and certified background checks. Don't be left in the dark. Contact Crimcheck today by going to crimcheck.net. Make sure to mention this ad to hear about their premier pricing solutions. UDP Nation, it's hard to believe that this is the last episode we will release this year. Before we intro this exceptional guest, we want to say thank you for supporting us in 2019. We have enjoyed every single interview and hope you can say the same. We wish you nothing but the best as you enter 2020. Take it away, Black. I second that, Deck. Our guest this week, Gus Blackman, is Warner Brothers' most tenured employee. After leaving Dayton, Ohio in 1973, he started in the mailroom at Warner Brothers, delivering mail while passing icons such as John Wayne. Now he is an accomplished producer working on the Emmy Award-winning show, Judge Mathis, and helped inspire shows like Roots and a miniseries called Frank Sinatra. I am proud to call this man my uncle. Welcome, Uncle Gus. Well, thank you, guys. I'm happy to be here and glad to be able to help out uh, my nephew, who uh, is one of my favorite nephews. So You don't have to say that just because he's here. You don't have to- <laughs> uh, I don't have to say that? No. Oh, okay. Because well, you told me, like, Give prior. me my money back. <laughs> <laughs> I already spent it. Oh. <laughs> Sounds about right. Right. Gone. So... Well, man, um, Kyle, I know you, you've, uh, you've been excited for this one, so I'll let you kind of kick it off. Um, I know we want to talk a lot about your, your, you know, your start from Dayton, Ohio, but I'll, I'll pass it over to uh, my man, Mr. Decker here to let him. Yeah, would love to kick it off once again. Um, we're honored to have the longest tenured Warner Brothers. Sorry, we're, we're throwing it out there. Hopefully, I don't think there ever, anyone's going to watch from Warner Brothers here, but anyway, neither the less, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to visit you a couple years back. Um, and just to put in perspective from someone to understand, I was, I'd never been, um, to LA before. And then to go there to tour with you on Warner brothers campus to do lunch, um, to then walk around. And, uh, when we say you're like a legend, it's no doubt, Hey, Gus, Gus, Gus. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that, but it was incredible, (laughs) um, walking around. So, but what people don't know, um, they're saying, okay, hey, he's been there for 46 years. He's the longest tenure employee, but they don't understand that path. And that's one thing, you know, that underdog story, this being the underdog podcast, going from basically delivering mail to then being, you know, with Judge Mathis and all the other things that come in between. I wanted to make sure before someone that's listening that might say, oh, this might not attribute to me. You know, this story is very, very, I think will be inspirational or impactful to listen to your journey. So let's get it kicked off with that said to talk to us about your your upbringing uh, here not too far away in Dayton, Ohio. Well, as Calvin said, I was born in Dayton, Ohio and uh, graduated from high school in 1966. Um, Left uh, high school, went right into the factories, as all of us did back then. 
Uh, I didn't go to college. I wanted money right away, so I wasn't interested in paying out money. So I wanted to make money. So <laughs> I wanted to have a car, an apartment, and a couple girlfriends. So that's what I ended up doing. But then I realized after five years that it wasn't for me. I mean, I saw the ceiling. I didn't. I saw 30 years from now, and I knew that I just couldn't take that climb. I had to do something different, but I wasn't sure what. Friend of my best friend of mine, I grew up with, was out in California. His name was Walter Heath, and he was uh, he had left early and started in touring with a group called Sills and Cross, and they had a record deal at Warner Brothers, and uh, he told me to come out and. I did. I came out and left uh, this, left the comforts of home, and most of my family was not happy about it. They, just, they would say, well, what are you going to do out there? I said, I don't know. Well, what are you going to work? I don't know. All right, then you'll be back. Okay. <laughs> and, the, you know, the foreman at the GM plant said, we'll hold your job for you. You know, don't take your little time off, but, but uh, you know, we know you'll be back. Well, needless to say, I never came back to work. I came back to visit as I would because I have wonderful family here. But I went out there and uh, ended up in a place called uh, Pomona. And But before that, I, I had my son with me and his mother, his mom was out there. So she was, he was able to stay with her. And of course, she didn't want me staying there. And I, I didn't want to, but I kind of expected to. But <laughs> uh, So I found a place to park my car, my 1971 Bonneville Broham with my 8-track in it. And uh, I was able to sleep in that car for a couple of days while I job hunt. Washed up at uh, McDonald's in the morning, had a couple of sandwiches and off and running. So my mom, she said to me, hey, look, you have an uncle in a place called Pomona, which is about 30, 30 miles from LA. And I said, okay, I'll go down there. He said, come on down and hang out for a while. So I did. And uh, he had a nice stable home. They welcomed me. He had two, three sons. And so I had a good time for about nine months, worked at a place called Xerox. And when I first went in there, I said, well, God, here, I didn't come all the way out here to work for another factory. But it was a different one. So when I, they, they hired me and they said, we want to take you out and introduce you to the foreman and show you around. Found out there were 40 guys working there and 400 women. So I stayed there for about <laughs> nine months <laughs> and hung out. They had a basketball team and I was uh, one of the star players of the basketball team and we, the ladies were cheerleaders. So it was fun. But after a while, I realized this is not why I came out. And my friend said, hey, Warner Brothers is hiring. I said, what's Warner Brothers? Uh, Warner Brothers. He said, yeah, go up there to Burbank and put an application in. So I drove up, put an application in, and they asked me, okay, when, when can you start? I said, okay, I can start next week. So they, uh, they hired me, and I started in the mailroom, which was one of the best places to start, whether you're at a studio or a network or an, or an agency like William Morris or CAA, any of those places, because you, you can get your feet on solid ground and learn about everything before you decide which direction you want to go. 
So I was there, and we had a nice fraternity-type environment in the mail room. And uh, I would drive my cart around on the lot and look at all these famous stars like John Wayne, Yul Brenner, and uh, Muhammad Ali, Sidney Poitier. I mean, they, they were all there. This was 1973. Now, this was 1970. Yeah, 1973. So back then, it was unlike today. You, you don't see them walking around as much as you did back, did back then. So it was... I was in heaven, coming from a factory at GM, Dayton, Ohio, to Warner Brothers Studios, stars everywhere, driving a golf cart around, delivering mail, and just, I said, God, and they're paying me for this. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a wonderful experience, and I was fortunate enough, and I always say blessed enough, to get on the television route. Now, the mailroom guys had different routes. You had the back, back lot route, the television route, the feature, theatrical route, and on and on and on and on. I got that. And Warner Brothers Television at that time was a small boutique company uh, with maybe 40 employees. It's hard to believe that, but (laughs) only 40 employees. And they had two shows that were on, one called Kung Fu and the other one called Harry O. So... Uh, I ended up in the story department at Warner Brothers Television because one of the guys that was the guy that was there, he didn't want to work there anymore, so they employed me to be the clerk in the story department. And the next three years, I learned everything I wanted to, I needed to learn about that. And it was fortunate enough for me to, to just learn how the whole business worked from that from that standpoint, which was business affairs, administration, creative, because all of the literary material came into that department. Books, scripts, outlines, everything. And so three years later, I ended up running that department. Now, when you say you, you, you obviously had to take, you know, you took these three years and, and you, you got to learn everything, but throughout the day, you still had a job of delivering mail. So no, I was out of the mail room at that time. Okay. So what happens is they, they sometimes they would loan people from the mail room to different departments. Okay. They loaned me out to the TV story department. And after I was there for a while, I realized that the guy that was there did not want to be there. So they got rid of him, kept me, and there was three of us, the secretary, my boss, and me. My job was to my job was to catalog all the literary material that came in, deliver it around to different departments, casting, production, post-production, uh, legal, business affairs, all of those. And at the same time, we had to type up these scripts and get them out. Now, this was an archaic way of doing it back then. They had what's called a stenographic pool where they had secretaries or who would type the scripts. Each one would type an act. I would proofread the act, take all of them down to the, when they're done, to the print shop, collate them, print them up, and then deliver them around a lot. So it, it taught me 
how scripts were developed, how they were written, how they were structured, so that later on I was able to develop a writer's workshop program using that same model. And that workshop is still going on today. It's been on. It's been up for forty years. It's the longest running workshop in in television history, and my name is associated with it. So that's another little legacy I can feel proud of. Well, they might have. What do they have? Like not the Mount Rushmore, but of what do they have in Hollywood? They have the uh, the stars. Yeah, we're gonna have Gus Gus Bly. I'm gonna get him a star. We gotta give him a star. <laughs> I don't know who we gotta call to get a star, but. This man deserves a star. They, they got to listen to the UDP. Three years later, my boss was forced to retire because he was 66. And they since eliminated that rule. Supreme Court shot, shot it down. But it opened up the door for him to retire, me to move into that slot. Because mm -hmm. I learned everything about that department. So I literally grew up on the lot. And I grew up in that business. I was involved in every aspect of television because that department everything came into it the, you know deal memos uh, legal documents uh, union documents reports creative all the producers sent their handwritten scripts to me and so that I can format them and put them in proper shooting format so that and then get them out to casting production and everyone else so and then this this was a special time because at that this time we had shows like Head of the Class, Growing Pains, Night Court, Eight Is Enough, Roots, Thornburgs, Murphy Brown, China Peach. So I was able to work on all of these shows and learn the entire business. Um, I did that for about nineteen years. What do you what do you say, Gus? Real quick on. Um I believe in taking tangible, someone's listening, a tangible action item that they could take away from your story. What would you say taking, going from Dayton, Ohio, taking that risk to go to um, Los Angeles and then to then go to Burbank to Warner Brothers? Like, what, what do you stem as? Because to me, I would like to know of like, what, what would you recommend for others that are kind of searching and figuring out? their path, like what are things that you did? Was it just a fearlessness? Was it, you know, you just said, okay, hey, you had a vision or was it more of just like you fell into these opportunities? What was it? Like, what do you, what do you kind of um, attribute to? Thank you. There you go. See, look, we're good partners. No doubt. Appreciate it. Here, I'm here. Hey, Calvin's still here. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> hey, yeah. I throw adjectives out. You're not sleeping over there. Yeah. Stay woke. Uh, first of all, you know, I was thrown into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not something that I, you know, planned and went to school and knew that that would be the end result of my education. I was dropped into it, and I was able to bring the upbringing, upbringing that I had from Dayton, Ohio, with my parents, and also a lunch pail mentality. I was on time every day. I never missed a day's work. In fact, the, my boss and his secretary, when they left at night, they would see me still in my office, the Cubby Hill office, still there. And then when they would come in in the morning, they would see me there. They said, did you go home last night? I said, yeah. Because they they're not used to people being that committed to the job. And that's why the other guy that was there before, 
they let him go because he was a slip off. So I would say that for the first year and a half, I never missed a day and I was never late. And I did everything that they asked me to do without, without giving them any kind of attitude or anything else. So that was refreshing for them. And they, they came to rely and depend on me to the point where they could walk away and know that, that things were going to be taken care of. So I would say that just, I don't care what you're into, whether you're sports or you, you're, you're in the business or whatever school or whatever it is, commitment, just being there every day mm-hmm. so that they can, people can rely upon you. You're part of a team. If you're not there, then the team suffers. If you're late, the team suffers. So I was there every morning, and they could, they came to rely on. So when it was time for them to replace my boss, they looked to me, even though I didn't have the education because I didn't I didn't have a law degree, which I should have had, which you need today if you try to do that again today. And I didn't have a business uh, degree. I didn't have. I just they just say this guy he knows this this business i mean he knows this department inside and out and so we're going to give him a shot so <laughs> i came to find out uh, years later that there was a bet among other executives who did not want me in that position it felt like i shouldn't have been there that i wouldn't last that i would fail and uh well they're all gone and i'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> boom that's a, that's <laughs> a mic drop, drop. Yep. so i that, wish i wish you could get the the black men work ethic gene over to, you know, this generation. So we're trying to, he's, he believes in like 10 to four, three. He's like on these part-time hours. I'm like, I'm like, man, we got to gut. You got to be Gus. That's got to rub off. We got to get Gus to rub off on you. Well, you know, that, that's, that's like that old movie. That's gone with the wind. (laughs) That, that mentality. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. The the old school mentality that's worked. Right. I mean, it's, it's true. It's these, I'm going to put a picture of you in his (laughs) office and say, Hey, Calvin, when you're working four hours a day, you know, part-time. Gus was working 20 hours a day. Exactly. I need to, I need to level up. First in, first out. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I always give him a hard time. I Tell him to have to sleep in his car a couple of nights. That, that, yeah, that'll change some that things. Change. That, that, <laughs> yeah, when you said that, I think that's that's something actually to kind of pinpoint and focus on is that, yeah, not only did you go out there, I mean, you're sleeping in your car and you're getting washed up in McDonald's. You know, that's that's tough. I mean, you're basically pseudo homeless, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, and it, it was not uncommon for people who are committed to do to put that in that kind of uh, effort into it you know no matter what i'm going to survive i'm going to make it um i'm not going to give up turn tail and go back to dayton ohio so they can all say oh i told you so you know i knew you were coming back and i i was not going to give them that satisfaction no i i said i've come that's what they want Hell or high, I can say hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Some hell or high water. I, I was not gonna, I was not gonna give up. So the drive, and the commitment, and the fun. I was having a lot of fun on that lot. I mean, it was like a university. Well, you guys been there? It's it's so. It's, what was John Wayne like? Well, I was in the mailroom when I ran into him, and so I was, you know, you deliver mail in the morning to your route, and then you wait to the afternoon to deliver that and then pick up the late uh, uh, mail. In between, you run specials for different executives, gave tours and for their, their guests or whatever, and 
So I did that. I drive around on the lot and show them where the creature from the Black Lagoon was filmed. And this is where Maverick was filmed. And this is so they were Tarzan was over there and they were like, whoa. So and it, it was it was that. So I was delivering mail. I opened this door and I ran in and I saw this wall <laughs> and and he this guy turned around and said, hey, fella. You know, hello there. I ran into the back of his back. This man was so wide and so big. It was like. Oh, he was really that big? Oh, he was a big guy. He was a big guy. But he was a friendly guy. And the other, the other little story was Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner was doing a movie, and I would time my route so that I would catch him walking out every morning to the set. So, so we would pass one another. So after four days, he looked at me and said, we got to stop, you know, meeting like this. I got to keep an eye on you because it's obvious what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, but it, I, he was not, he was not uh, threatened by it or he's, it, it didn't bother him or anything. I think he just found humor in it. And so, you know, and when Muhammad Ali was the world champion, he had an entourage walking down the on the lot when people were looking around and, was, and and he saw me and you know one of the few african-american guys and he would gave me a thumbs up and i gave him a thumbs up back and so it was those those little things like that memories that i i, I had forgotten about uh, after 46 years yeah, yeah. <laughs> now i i did uh did a little research and i you recently just revealed this to someone that I spoke to, um, but I know the the TV show Roots. Um, you had, the, which was a very historic TV show, but to my understanding, you had something to do with the founding of the original writers for that show. Not not quite like that. My job was, like I said, it was I ran the TV story department. I hired all the writers for our television programs after the. The producers uh, told me who they wanted. I would call the agents, negotiate the deal, and and make sure I put them on the writers get writers guild list of writers working that week. And when their materials come in, I would uh, pay them according to what stage it was in, outline, first draft, whatever. And then at the end, I would. Uh, and then we delivered all the scripts around to all the sets and everywhere. But to your question, they were having problems finding African-American writers. So they asked me to find the research and find David, David Wolper, the producer, executive producer of Roots. So I was able to, that, that started me getting involved with making a difference and the makeup of writers at Warner Brothers Television. Because after that, the Writers Workshop started. And the Writers Workshop started, the Television Writers Workshop started because the Writers Guild was frustrated because they were getting a lot of flack that there wasn't a lot of representation. So they said, you know, can you guys do something to help? So Warner Brothers asked me to put something together. I started this 10-week workshop from uh, pitching the idea to first draft to, to pitching the idea, outline, step outline, first draft, second draft. And over 10 weeks, the writers would have a finished script. 
it was for disadvantaged writers is what this workshop was for. And I hated that title. Eventually it became, over the next 10 years, minority writers. And then I knocked that down because I wanted these writers to work, walk into a, a room, a writer's room, without any labels on them or anything and be a, an equal. And eventually I got their pay up to where they were on an equal level with other beginning writers, staff writers, as they call, before they received credits like story editors, staff, executive story editors, story consultants, and like that. But as far as roots, yeah, I found several, I found three writers that wrote three of the episodes of Roots. And, but I've hired all of the writers. Right. And I, I handled all of the credits because I, I determined what the credit should be. And then I submitted that to the Writers Guild. And then if they approved it, that's where it stands. Now, if someone objected, then we would have an arbitration. And then I would have to send in everyone's version, everyone's participation. The first writer, second writer who was hired, after they fired him, they brought another writer. After they fired him, then they, so, the, okay, I have to read and say, okay, who has the most material in this final version so that I can determine it was, if they received teleplay by, because it was based on a book uh, by Alex Haley, so there was no story by. So it, would be, it was teleplay by, so... Um, and one of the most famous arbitrations I was involved with was Frank Sinatra's. And we did a miniseries called Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a six hour miniseries and his daughter, uh, Tina Sinatra, uh, and I became friends because she wanted certain writers not to get credit. So I worked with her and worked with her and made sure that First of all, it was going to be a legitimate credit, but it worked out in their favor. And she was so happy that when they had, we had a reception and Frank came in, all the execs were there, she grabbed his arm and walked him straight to me and said, this is the guy that got the credit we wanted, Dad. This is the guy. And that's the famous picture I have of he and I yeah. in my office. So... You know, it was nice being recognized by the chairman of the board. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, Frank Sinatra, John Wayne. I mean, we were there. We we're walking by Ellen, LeBron's office. I mean, you just, you name it. Who is your, because um, obviously, I mean, from a, us from Ohio, I'm a little bit starstruck even when I was out there. Who was your favorite um, actor, actress, or TV personality to be around outside of, obviously, Judge Judge Mathis? Um um, or top three. Uh, well, I, I I I don't know if you guys know Deepak Chopra. Uh, he's a spiritualist, but he's one. I was very honored to be involved with him. We we produced two movies based on his book. One was called The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, and the other one was called How to Know God. But as far as actor, um, hmm. Denzel. I haven't worked with Denzel. I, I, there was, let's see, what, what, Roots, I mean, I worked with all the writers, all the actors in Roots. So you go right down the line. 
and everybody who's anybody was in it. Halle Berry was fun to look at. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. She did Queen, uh, and uh, you know, uh, so they were. There's so. so did you did you take so that path every day like you did with the other guy? And you're like Halle Berry. Uh, she was on location, so okay. I couldn't go down there as much. But when they shot on the lot, uh, some interior scenes, I went to the stage where they were shooting. But yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, all the Superman movies, the very first one, you know, with uh, Christopher Reeve, uh, you know, he was he was fun. And then as far as the, I think Murphy Brown, she was fun to hang around with uh, Candace Bergen and. Uh, there's just so many of them. When I write the book, I'll answer that question. There you go. All right. So, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just taking a breath. Now we want to. <laughs> I, I do want to talk a lot about. Um, you know, you've talked about. You know, your ability to to find talent and whatnot. And uh, Judge Mathis, I know, uh, has been. That's been your. You know, it's been your thing for the last twenty years, but. Um, we take a minute and talk about the evolution of Judge Mathis and how that all came to be as far as how you all, you know, how the project came about and then how you had to go seek and find and, and then how that relationship formed between you two and, and it is what it is today. Okay. Well, after uh, 18, 19 years of Warner Brothers television, Warner Brothers Television wanted to get involved in syndication. They didn't want to start from scratch, so they bought a company called Lorimar Television. Lorimar Television had shows like Dallas, Step by Step. Uh, what's the other one? Um, Family Matters. Family Matters. Well, here we go. Look at that. Oh, yeah. And so and Falcon Houston, Crest. I didn't know trivia. <laughs> Yeah, they had they had quite a few shows. On our shows at the other end were dying out, so Warner Brothers decided to shut us down and make Lorimar Television, Warner Brothers Television. They got rid of everybody except a few of, of us. They kept me, they got rid of my department and my staff, but they allowed me to bring the writer's workshop down to them. And we... We did a lot of good things. We started traveling with that workshop. We went to Jamaica. We went to New Orleans. We did a workshop in Baltimore, Boston, Chicago. Sounds like you were doing a lot of partying, not a workshop. <laughs> That's what Les Moonves thought. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did a teleconference where we, uh, we sent out flyers to all the universities who had creative arts departments who wanted to learn the business of writing for television. And we received about 400 applications from the schools around the country. And we said, okay, on the date that we're going to do this teleconference, and this was the, at the infancy of teleconferences, and we were sent out the coordinates. And they were paid us $75 for that. So we did it, and we had a huge success. You know, They were calling in from all over the country, Hawaii, Alaska, and everything. And that was so... I was becoming too big. And so they decided, okay, we're going to shut the workshop down, tell Blackman it's over. And uh, okay, my boss, who gave me my first job in the 70s, who is now chairman of the board of Warner Brothers. So he called me in and says, so Gus, what do you want to do? 
I said, well, I'd love to have a development deal. He said, well, you haven't done that, but I can give you, I can only give you a, an office and a secretary. Now, I had 11 people under me at, up until that point. So he gave me a thanks for the memory deal, <clears throat> uh, 18 months. So for the first nine months, I watched the sand in the hourglass just go down. And I started, I found another guy who was into media sales and distribution. And so he was able to bring in the black advertisers like Uniworld or Burrell and a lot of these others who wanted to buy time into the Warner Brothers shows like Steve Harvey, Jamie Foxx show, um, the Wayne Brothers. Uh, we had a bunch of them back then. So we were able to start a business. He would handle media sales and distribution. I would have to come up with original programming. Okay, so he was bringing in $20 million or more a year, and I was like trying to get anything done. I mean, I was working with Morgan Freeman, and he, he, he dropped the ball on us when we had a deal. Charles Dutton, all these, a lot of guys. Uh, who's the guy who was on uh, NCIS uh, New Orleans, uh, the lead? Anyway, he, I had, a, I had a football movie with him uh, called Jack Trice, which was was the first African American football player out of Utah, I think, or Iowa State, or one of those places. And I couldn't sell anything, <laughs> so I started working on this show called. One World Music Beat with Russell Simmons. It was a little magazine hip-hop show with uh, a couple of famous actresses, Kamara and uh, a couple other people. And then I did another show called Motown Live, a weekly show. And I was, we finished the weekly show, but Warner Brothers wasn't interested in those little shows. So when I was at NAPTI, I don't know if you guys know what that is. Nap NAPTI is where the, every year the television industry goes either to New Orleans, Vegas, Miami, and all the buyers come and they, sh they sell their shows, they buy their shows, weekly shows, daily shows. The station groups come and that's where all the businesses are. We had a couple of little shows, that's why I was there. So I came out of, an, I was standing outside Warner Brothers booth and one of the executives came out and said, hey, Gus, listen, we're looking for a young African-American male with charisma, motivational, you know, find somebody, keep, him, keep it in mind, okay? Oh, okay, yeah, I just, all right, I wasn't thinking. I said, well, they want a Montel Williams type, okay. <laughs> so after the Motown Live taping, we went up to the Hilton, Universal Hilton, had some drinks, and I was telling my partner and the other guys, man, I need to find a brother for telepictures. He said, hey, man, I know this guy out of Detroit. He used to be a thug. Now he's a judge. <laughs> uh, the judge? Yeah, man. He used to be a gang member. Now he, they, they elected him judge. I said, really? Wow, I like the meeting. Well, he's in, he's in town. He's here with Jesse Jackson. They're doing some big benefit at the Coliseum. I said, well, can you have him call me? So he's, yeah. So the judge called me. I said, hey, look, I'd like to meet you and talk to you about a TV show. He said, well, I was supposed to leave tomorrow. I said, well, I'll take care of your trip and your hotel and all that. So I met him and at a place called George's, which is a famous restaurant owned by Denzel, Debbie, what? 
Debbie uh, Allen and Wesley Snipes, a whole bunch of them. It was a hot spot on Melrose. And so I met him. I said, I'd like to bring you into telepictures, Warner Brothers. He said, oh, okay. I said, now listen, if somebody get up and walk out, that's not a good thing. <laughs> he said, okay. So he came in and he gave his spiel and I thought he was doing a great job. Some guy got him, walked out. Of, but he came back in with the president and they wanted to hear the whole thing over again. <laughs> And when it was done, he said, I want this show. You got a show. That's how I sold it. Just like that. There was no bells, whistles, no I pre-planned. It was just, as the judge and I were saying, drinking champagne one night, it was just divine order. Yeah. I mean, it was. there's no other reason. Because he was in town for one reason. He was trying to sell his life story to HBO. So they... Bought the show. They shot a pilot. Sheila, my wife, she was a makeup artist on it. And she wasn't my wife at that time. Uh, but Okay. Well, now I'm learning. <laughs> but uh, I kept the package. I kept her and the judge. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, Gus, we are back. And he was just touching upon um, the package. The package. So package deal. let's pick right back up. <laughs> let's keep this uh, Judge Mathis story in... in uh, off of Melrose and and let's keep let's keep it rolling. Well, before he accepted the deal, I had to fly back to Detroit and convince his wife to ask him to step down from the bench. Can you explain what that means? Which means if you accept a television show, you have to step down from the bench, give up your judgeship and which he worked so hard to get to and you can't go back because you were elected official. I mean, Judge Judy had to do it. She had to give up her $98,000 a year job for this seventy for this $47 million a year job. And I know that was tough, but she, she good, did it. That's a good trade right there. Uh, so I talked to him. I talked to his wife and Jesse Jackson and those guys. And they were like, Judge, you sure you want to do this? And he said, yeah. And look, I want to take the shot. So... They ordered six episodes. Now, you know, there are no guarantees. After six episodes, if your numbers aren't there, as you guys know, you're off the air. So that's a risk. And he took the risk. And 20 years later, he's still on the air, and we've been picked up for three more years. So Just won an Emmy Award last year? We won an Emmy last year. Uh, so I was able to walk up on the stage and uh, do the whole thing that you see on TV. And uh, I have my Emmy at my house next to my NAACP Image Award. So those two statues are the most validation that I can have in this business. So I mean, tell us a little about the NAACP Award that you received. Well, it's a it's a yearly show, and it's like every other award show. Only it's a uh, it's for the NAACP who recognize uh, entertainers and writers and authors and uh, music folks every year. And they're nominated like every other show. And then they're at the show itself. They're, they announce the winner. And then you walk up on the stage and you thank everybody. And then you get your statue. Mm -hmm. So... 
it's like a Grammy, it's like uh, an Oscar, it's like uh, you know a Tony, all these. So, in the, in the black community, it's the highest award you can receive. Oh, more, it's not the highest; it's the most respected, honorable. I mean, the highest, you know, image, and I mean Emmy and Oscar, you know. But but you know, you like to have one of those statues in your, no doubt, in your bookcase. Congratulations. So. So the judge, uh, you know, he he just hit the ground and the numbers hit, and uh, there were three, there were about four other shows that hit came out that year. One was with Mills Lane, the boxer. He had a show. Uh, there was Divorce Court came out, and it's still going on. But Divorce Court is owned by Fox, and they can change judges. You can't replace Judge Mathis because it's. Judge Mathis, you can't <laughs> replace Judge Judy because it's called Judge Judy. <laughs> right. So to have your name as the name of the show is, you know, it's kind of insulates you. It kind of protects you from being replaced. So, uh, and Joe Brown, that was the other one, Judge Joe Brown. Um, he had a terrible fall uh, from grace. But uh, the judge, is, he was committed. He has four children, two, uh, two are attorneys. Uh, one is a one is a clerk for a senator in D.C., and he's a he's a lobbyist doing extremely well. And his other son is a production coordinator. He graduated from uh, uh, in, in NY not NY Chicago. What is called the school? DePaul or Chicago or no, Illinois Chicago? It's the Film production school, like oh, okay. like, like yeah, in New York, tough for my head. It's NY, NY, like one, an NYU type it, deal in Chicago. Yeah, gotcha. it's that, and a lot of famous people came out. So he's done it well there. His other daughter, uh, two daughters, they're both fraternities. One works right there in my building. She's uh, she's graduated from San Diego Law School, and they hired her in business affairs, and she's doing extremely well, and she's. Uh, She's she's very good, yeah, very so good. What would you say, Gus, on sustaining excellence? Obviously, big risk. Only signed you on for six episodes. What has sustained uh, Judge Mathis to have the consistency in the tenure that he's had? Like, what do you, what do you, what's your guys' recipe? What's behind the scenes, and and what makes you guys consistently productive? I think it's his personality. I mean, he's people like him. I mean, he's not. He's real. He's street. He can be corporate or he can be street. And you can't come in there and try to get over on him because he's, you know, I've been in the streets. And he's also, he's gone up to the ladder and became a lawyer and a judge. So he has that experience. So, but more importantly, I think the judge, he's, he's a player. I mean, he's... <laughs> When he was coming up, he was a player. He was in the streets and everything. And, you know, a lot of these guys who are players, they become very good business people or, or actors or, you know, uh, they, they just bring that, that, that quality that they have that, that, you know, either have or you don't have. They bring it with them all, all, you know, all the way to wherever they're going. So he's able to entertain. He's all about entertaining first. And then, because he knows, look, this show is about entertainment. 
So I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be boring and I'm not going to try to be Judge Judy because that's her. That's her stick. I'm going to be me. And I think that's what you have to always remember. Just be yourself. You know, don't, don't try to, because eventually you will be exposed. And once you're exposed, then they're going to drop you. And then they're going to talk about you. And they go, it's just, just, it's over. So be yourself. Like I try to be myself. Uh, people try to make me, they try to, hey, Gus, you need to get out there more. When I was coming up the ladder, I was a, I was a vice president, uh, one of the first at Warner Brothers Television. And they, you need to get out there. I don't need to be out there flossing and doing all that. I go home at night, my kids and wife, that's me. Uh, and I used to, they used to, you know, they used, to, that, they used to criticize me because I wasn't more out there in the networking social scene and doing this and flaunt. But where are they now? Where am I? I'm still there. And this, How'd that work out for them? Right. <laughs> right. So it's another good takeaway for your nephew here. I mean, just get out of that social scene and, <laughs> and get to work and, and stop being a player in the streets. So, Check whose social media? See, you shouldn't have brought me here. Hey, uh, that's I, I, hey, Gus is on Team Decker. They're not black. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> there was a, there, there was no choice. We had to, we had to bring you. Even here. though he's your great uncle that you love to death, he's he's on the podcast on the Decker. Absolutely. Side. Uh, ah. So you want to do a little rapid fire? Yeah, let's do it. So this is a little segment we have where we rattle off just a few questions. All um, right. You know, kind of see where you are, see where your mind's at, where your head's at. Uh, Remember, I just turned 72 last uh, two weeks ago, so I'm not a rapid fire person. You know what they say? The the 72, now the 72 is the new 32. So you're only really 32. Think about that. They told me that? You're young. Really? Yeah. Oh, they told me I was 27. Calvin got you a coffee cup here or a teacup that has 50. 50. So, yeah, yeah, you know. You're still young. Yeah. You look. I actually the first time I when I met Gus, I was like, "There's no way this guy's how we've worked for 46 years here." I was like, "This guy's like, <laughs> he looks like he's 55." Hey, staying below the radar. That's what happens. Right. You know? And I was like, "What's your formula?" And you're like, "Well, you know, live a good life. Being out here in L.A. doesn't hurt. <clears throat> you know." And I'm like, "I got to figure out how to get <laughs> somehow quality of life." Yeah, we're behind the scenes here. We see him with Judge Mathis on the first floor at Lakers games. I mean. Can't hurt, can't hurt. So, but well, hey, let's let's put them on the hot seat. Let's make them let's make them answer some tough ones here. I don't know how tough they are, but we'll see. Um, most rewarding project other than Judge Mathis, and that could be tough. But the most rewarding is the Writers Workshop program because I, from that workshop, there are millionaire writers, writers who have made millions of dollars, who have won Emmys, who have created shows. Uh, that is a legacy that I'm very proud of. It's still going on. And it's still going on. I mean, I was able to provide that opportunity and 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 open the door and allow all these folks to come in. And I, you know, every now and then I get recognized from a lot of the writers from that. I should have had a, a contract with all of them so I could get it's my royalty. 10%. Right. Because some of them have created some major shows uh, like, uh, you know, Big Bang Theory and, you know, some friends and all these shows. Who, I mean, really, yeah. Yeah, some big dollars. <laughs> or some big dollars, yeah. yeah. Your legacy is incredible, so that's something someone can't take away from you. Right, number two here, better golfer, Gus Blackman, Magic Johnson, or Judge Mathis? 
Gus Blackman. Oh, no question about it. <laughs> I mean, Magic, I played in this tournament. Magic is just, uh, he's a prop. Uh, but <laughs> now, he's a very successful prop, <laughs> and he's a good guy. But no, nah, he doesn't play golf. And the judge, the judge is right. He, he shows up at golf tournaments as a... Uh, as a guest, you know, just uh, just to have a celebrity in the mix. But no, he he always said, I, "Gus, I need to pick up golf." I said, "No, you don't. 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 You're doing just fine. Don't. You don't need the aggravation. No, don't do it." But no, I'm yeah, obviously yeah, because I play more. Uh, you can tell by my hat. You know? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Look good. Greatest Lakers basketball player of all time, Magic Johnson. So Magic's not good at golf, but pretty good at basketball. I think you, you know so. you know he's a Kobe Bryant. He's a he's a Kobe a Bryant guy thing. I think I think that Magic ushered in basketball at a time when it was not as what it is, and it, and he was able to, you know, he came out of he won a championship in college. He won his first year as a pro <laughs> when Kareem went down. I mean, he stepped in and. Played center, scored 42 points and 12 rebounds. And Kobe didn't win until Shaq came. So I had to throw that out there. And he didn't win again until Pal Casal came. So I had to say that. So Magic won. Okay. Of course, Magic had Kareem, too. So <laughs> I'll give you that. Worthy. <laughs> Worthy. <laughs> Cooper, Scott. Yeah. So working for Warner Brothers. What is your favorite aspect of working there after 46 years? Favorite aspect? Um, I think, I just think creative, just enjoying the, the creative, you know, process. Because if you're out here, it looks like Mandarin Chinese. But when you're in it, you realize how simple it is, and it really is, but you have to be in it so you can see it. A lot of people don't want to take the step or and go. They want to. I had people who wanted me to help them from the comforts of their home back east. I said, no, you have to get up and get on, get in line with the rest of them out here. You're not going to sit back there. Oh, send me, let me send you my script, Gus, and then. Next day, well, what did you find out today? Wait a minute, come on, you got, I'm not working for you. You want to shop your script, you get out here. So, no, it's very, it's not that difficult. Our business is very simple. It's, and the judge found that out also. He's now has, he's produced three shows on BT, and one just recently aired a few weeks ago. And he and I had a couple other things we've done. So, I mean, he's able to do it from all the other things he's doing because he understands the process is not as difficult. It's talent, talent, talent. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was able to succeed because I bought talent. And I brought, I brought Mathis to the show, I mean, to Telepictures. They bought the show, and that was the end of my work the residual i didn't have to do anything now you're else. just sitting back playing golf yes yeah. yeah yeah i mean and go to the rap party once a year there you go and uh no but that's it's all about talent and ideas a second 
secondary, but I think just the if you can find talent and like in music, like in your like in your business, mm-hmm. you're looking for talented people who can make your company look better than it is. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree with you anymore. Calvin and I talk about mm-hmm. you know his main role for our organization is to bring in talent and we talk about all the situations we have throughout our network. And we're like, wow, what if we had this person there, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it comes down to talent or the, pe- the person, right? It's a people business, just like your business is people. And how much better we are when it's, we're all, we're only as good as the team we create. You can call it talent, you call it the people, you call it the, um, the work ethic or the, the, the surrounding, the DNA of, of that group of mm-hmm. people and individuals. So what a great uh, way to, I think, as we come to a conclusion here, um, you know, what great advice and what an underdog story just to kind of re regroup here on, on your whole story. I mean, going from Ohio out to California, living out of a car, taking, you know, a bath basically inside a McDonald's restroom to then, uh, working in the mailroom at Warner brothers to then, you know, having all these esteemed awards and rightfully so, and creating, um, these workshops and, and the different things you've done onto judge Mathis. I mean, just incredible so to have you here and spending time on the underdog podcast i can only speak upon myself but i know calvin obviously loves his uncle and feels so proud to have you here and then sharing your story it's very inspirational so thank you for for joining us well thanks for having me i'm happy to be here absolutely appreciate it thank you very much uncle that means like kyle said uh means a lot you know not always knowing haven't heard bits and pieces of your story uh growing up but as i've gotten older and older to be able to kind of piece it together um i knew one of the things we wanted to do was definitely get you on the show and and share your story because it is an inspiration to to a lot of people to a lot of those listening and as you can see as we just heard there's a lot of correlation in you know from from all industries you know it's just it's a matter of finding talent and and being you know uh what sort of like persistent uh and relentless and here's the best thing if anything happened out of this whole thing here you go here you go. He learned how he should work. <laughs> I knew he, he had relaxed. some. <laughs> so Uncle Gus is leading the way. So we'll, we're going to end it on that. But yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps. And send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.